In Christ there is neither slave or free, male or female, Jew or Greek, Baptist or Wesleyan, Canadian or American, but all are one in Christ Jesus. Isn't that awesome? Uh, <laughs> for some of you, maybe it's not awesome, but for, for others, it is awesome. You know, the number one witnessing tool in the early church was not passing out tracts door to door. It was actually uh, Jews and Gentiles, two groups of people who had been taught to hate each other for a millennium, coming together under the banner of Christ and learning to love each other by virtue of their love for Christ. And that spoke volumes to the world. God must be real if Jews and Gentiles are getting along. And so I think Baptists and Wesleyans ought to get along too. Don't you think? The Baptists are like, no, not really. (laughs) Just kidding. There was uh, a time not too long ago when people stopped expecting God to speak. And so people stopped listening for a word from God for the people of God. Help us, God. Deism uh, rose to prominence in Europe during uh, the 17th through 19th centuries. And deism didn't, it wasn't atheism, it didn't deny the existence of God. Uh, Deists believed God existed. God exists, and the natural world exists, and never the two shall meet. There is the supernatural world, and there is the natural world, and never the two shall meet. You can experience and explore creation, but you cannot experience and explore the creator. Deists believed in a non-interventionist God, a God who, who embedded the universe with natural law to govern the universe. And after God sort of wound the cosmic clock and put everything in the universe as it should be to sustain the universe, then God went on a perpetual vacation, never to interact with his creation. That's what deists believe. I think that we are often, as preachers, tempted to become homiletic deists. Preachers who preach as if everything were dependent upon us and nothing dependent upon God. Now, none of us would verbally or even consciously suggest that, we would all say verbally, of course we need God in the preaching event. Of course it matters more that God shows up than the preacher shows up. But I wonder how many of us practice preaching like a homiletic deist. Maybe we throw out a, you know, toss out a prayer every once in a while, you know, a homiletical Hail Mary asking God to show up. But there's no consistent and comprehensive space for God to intervene in the process of developing and delivering sermons. Like the deist who is more enamored with creation than the creator, the homiletic deist is more enamored with the work of the Lord than the Lord of the work. The homiletic deist is like the artist's ghost in C.S. Lewis's Great Divorce. The artist's ghost was more caught up with the craft of art than what the art was intended to convey, which diminished the beauty of the art, actually. 
the homiletic deist, feels the full weight of the preaching event on their shoulders. I got to read the next book. I got to get the next method. I got to do this, do this. Don't do that. Don't do that. And many of us have been taught to practice preaching this way by idiotic professors like me (laughs) who've said that you shouldn't dare read the biblical text devotionally and homiletically at the same time. You have to separate your reading. So you have to separate your homiletical reading of Scripture to get the sermon from your devotional reading of Scripture for the soul, and never the two shall meet, which is a modern throwback. During the period of modernity, uh, they believed that the way to get to truth, scientifically empirical truth, was to detach yourself from the thing you were observing. The only way to get truth verifiably is to have some distance from it, detached objectivity. Because if you pour your subjectivity into it, if you pour your soul into it, you can't get truth. So we, that spilled over into biblical studies, which spilled over into homiletics, which has spilled over into the church. You can't read homiletically and devotionally at the same time. And if Augustine and the Apostle Paul and John Wesley and Charles Spurgeon was here, uh, they would call that hogwash. Theological term. There's a problem. And the problem is we have, so many of us, been taught to uh, separate our vocation from our formation. So we divorce ministerial vocation from spiritual formation. And what that does is it cuts the minister off from the source of joy. So that, minist- so that ministry becomes a task we do for God instead of a devotional journey with God. I'm not suggesting that ministry has to replace our devotional life. What I'm saying is that our devotional life needs to be set in the context of the ups and downs of ministry. So many studies have been done, and you've heard some of them, that uh, highlight the fact that clergy are burning out by the bunches. Have you heard this? A New York Times study back in 2010, August 1st, 2010, you can look up the article uh, called Taking a Break from the Lord's Work. Uh, The the article said that clergy uh, suffer from depression at rates higher than most Americans. Did you know that? Of course, you're a pastor. Yeah, of course you know. Uh, Their use of antidepressants has risen while their life expectancy has fallen. (coughs) Many would change jobs if they could. And then it says in the article, researchers are puzzled as to why members of a profession once associated with rosy cheek longevity have become so unhealthy and so unhappy. And I know why. I know why clergy are burning out in the bunches. I know why clergy are depressed. Because we've separated vocation from formation. We have viewed preaching as a rhetorical task we do for God instead of a devotional journey with God. We've cut ourselves off from the connection that elicits deep joy and keeps us going when the going gets tough in ministry. And when preachers lose their joy in ministry, we do some crazy things. 
we start downloading and preaching other people's sermons as if they were their own, our own. Uh, I had a, a, a friend, uh, actually my assistant pastor when I was on sabbatical, who was disconnecting from God. He just didn't have the joy anymore. I found out later he was having an affair at that time but uh, with a married woman. But he was basically downloading from pastors.com sermons that he was preaching as if they were his own, and he didn't even care to hide the fact that he was doing it. When he gave his sermon notes to the AV guy, it said on the bottom of every page, pastors.com. He didn't even care. Somehow, he separated his vocation from his formation. What happens more frequently, I think, is that because we've lost our connection to God and start doing some crazy things, we end up preaching sermons about finances or marriage or dating or emotions, sermons that can be applied to those areas of life without any relational connection to or submission to God. Those are deistic sermons, sermons that you really don't need God's empowerment to apply. Good advice sermons that you can get from Oprah or Dr. Phil that say nothing of substance about God, Father, Son, or Spirit. Deistic preachers preach deistic sermons. I think we can do better than that. How about you? I think God deserves better than that. I think our people deserve better than that. At the Council of Ephesus in 431, you weren't there, but let me tell you about it. The church got together and uh, trying to really wrestle with the identity of Jesus, his divinity and his humanity. And they came up, the church did, with a term to uh, describe Mary. And the term they came up with was theotokos. Greek word, theo, God, tokos, bearer. They called Mary the one who births God. And that term wasn't devised so much to elevate the status of Mary as much as it was to elevate the status of Jesus. It was as if to say when Mary gave birth to Jesus, she did not just birth a good man. She birthed God. In a more than a slightly different way, the preacher is Theotokos. If you preach, you are called to be God-bearer. You are not called just to preach a good sermon as if that weren't hard enough. You are called and I am called to preach good sermons that birth Christ in the moment our sermonic words are spoken so that people encounter him and not us. That sort of raises the bar for preaching, doesn't it? (laughs) The angel said about Mary to Joseph, That which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And the same needs to be said about the sermons we birth. That which is conceived, that sermon which is conceived in that preacher is of the Holy Spirit. And if that cannot be said, that that is not a Christian sermon being preached. So what I want to explore with you, we're going to get real practical here really nuts and bolts, and I know you're thinking about lunch, and I'll I'll go quick. But um, I I want us to to, uh, foster an environment 
in the practice of developing and delivering sermons where we can listen for God, a word from the Lord, so that what we say actually is substantive and not shallow. Okay, so let's, let's, uh, let's explore this. So we stay connected to God through the homiletic process. First of all, connect with God devotionally. I think I've said this uh, a few times. Others have said it today. You do not have to separate vocation from formation. You do not have to go about preaching as a rhetorical task instead of a devotional journey with God. I wrote my dissertation on that topic, by the way. Preaching as a spiritual discipline. I took 12 pastors through this, and they were just shocked and liberated by the fact that they can do their devotions and connect with God in the process of developing and delivering sermons. Duh. You know? it's, like, it's like all novel to them because they have been told that you can't. So here are some of the ways that I make sure that I stay connected to Christ in the process of developing and delivering sermons. First of all, oftentimes, I will uh, pray a portion of Psalm 119. Now, I won't read the whole thing because that will be my whole 10 hours of sermon prep because it's long. But I'll just take a chunk of it, and I won't just read it. It's all about the word. So it's just reading a chunk and meditating on it reminds me of the power of the word and my responsibility to let the text take the lead in the homiletic dance. Engage the text devotionally. After I've done some exegetical work, just making some observations in the text, I'll actually pose to God the question, God, how do you want this text to challenge or confirm or confront or comfort me? How does this text intersect with what's going on in my life? And the sermons I preach with the most passion and power are the ones in which the text has its way with me before it lays a hand on my congregation, by the way. I like to memorize and pray the preaching text when I'm in the shower, driving in the car. If it's a lengthy text, you can't do that maybe, but man, just get the heart of it internalized and, and don't wait till Sunday morning or Saturday night, like do it Monday or Tuesday. And it's amazing how God will work on your sermon, even in your subconscious, because the text is being internalized. Fast the meal and uh, pray for God's glory through the sermon. At some point in the week, maybe by Wednesday as the sermon takes shape, uh, give up a meal. We can afford to give up a meal, yeah? Some of you are like, yep. Some of you are like, nope. You can give up a meal. And fast and pray for God's glory through the sermon, which helps you with cruciformity, as we talked about earlier. just cuts the ego right out of it. And then here's... A great idea, a great way to get your people involved in uh, connecting with God through the sermon is develop prayer teams, a pre-service service and post-service prayer team. I had two guys in my most recent pastorate, older guys who prayed with me before I preached. And after they, I went into the sort of a literal closet. It was a janitor's closet. We prayed in there. And uh, I went into there sort of scared to death, frightened, insecure, and those guys laid hands on me and prayed for God's empowerment and anointing. And I walked out with a pep in my step. And I was ready to go. Uh, it was preaching. And they were involved in that. Have people pray during the service for the impact of the sermon. And then have people available to pray after the service. And if nobody comes forward to pray, they just keep praying for the impact, the ongoing impact on Monday for the sermon. All right, here, here's a bigger one. Uh, I, know it's, I know it's late in the day. Oh, it's late before lunch anyway. Um, K 
carefully progress through sermon sources. Now we're getting into the nuts and bolts. Uh, our sermon preparation process should move from exegetical, what does the text say, to hermeneutical, what might others say about the text, to homiletical, what will the sermon say about the text. I'm going to talk about some uh, source progression problems in a minute, but let me just point out the exegetical sources you might use. And these are not sources that help you interpret the text you're preaching, but help you define terms. So if you're in a text that uh, is about a tax collector, you might go to Dictionary of Jesus and the Gospels, a great resource, and look up tax collector. And again, it won't tell you how to interpret your text. It will help you define tax collector. Or you might go to a word study. Or you might go to an atlas to get the lay of the land, the topography of Jericho. Or you might go, if you're preaching on 8th century, a text that was written during the 8th century, Israel, you might go and look at a history of what was going on in Israel and the surrounding cultures at the time to help you interpret the text. It doesn't tell you how to interpret. This gives you uh, another view. The New Testament World by Bruce Molina uh, it helps you uh, sort of explore what marriage and family was like in the first century, Greco-Roman culture out of which the church grew. Uh, so these are just great sources. Anybody have any of these sources? Raise your hand if you have one of these sources at least. Okay? Probably the Dictionary of Jesus and the Gospels. Best $40 I've ever spent. And then there are hermeneutical sources. What do others say about the text? And, and I think we run to these way too early because God might want to give you an insight that no commentator has on that text. He can do that. He's God after all. But you might want to go to the Journal, Journal of Biblical Literature uh, to help with the text, Word Biblical Commentary. You might even go look at some of the greatest sermons ever preached on the text you're preaching. And then there's homiletical resources. So what will the sermon say about the text? So you might go to YouTube and look at a video clip that might metaphorically capture the essence of what your sermon will say. You might go to uh, Fox News or CNN and uh, find a new story that connects with what the sermon's going to say. Now here's, here's the issue. Here's the problem. There are three major problems, I think, in sermon source progression. As, as we develop the sermon. Uh, one is exegetical-only sermons. Uh, by the way, I think, of, I think of preaching a sermon as birthing a sermon. I've never birthed a child. My wife has birthed three. I watched. I held her hand. I helped her breathe. I, I didn't do it. But I do think that preaching is a lot like birthing. Okay, So, so women, I know you want to slap me probably if you've had a baby. You have no idea. You're thinking. Um, but it is a part of us. It's got our DNA all over it, doesn't it? I mean, we wrestle with the text. We birth it. And uh, we hope that people will think our baby's cute, you know, um, and they think it is, sort of, but there's wrinkles over there. Uh, so I do think of the, the sermon preparation and delivery process as birthing a sermon. Exegetical only is a sterile sermon, where the sermon is entirely what did the text say and mean back then. I think that's what Peter was getting at and Dave was getting at. We never bridge the gap between the two worlds. It's a bunch of commentary. It's a running exposition of the text that never gets grounded in the realities of the real people with real problems to whom we preach. It's a Bible study. It's not a sermon. Then there's the hermeneutical early. That's when we run right away to the commentators to tell us what to say. I call that a contraceptive. It keeps us from getting pregnant with a Holy Spirit-conceived sermon. And then there's homiletical first. Sorry again for these terms. You might hate me for it. Sorry. But you'll remember them. Artificial insemination. Okay? So we get a good idea. We get a good, something happened to us that week, and we've just got to share it in the sermon, and we, and we let the illustration become the tail that wags the sermonic dog. 
and determines how we read the text. That's a problem. Okay? You with me? You want to beat me up after the session? Okay. Some of you are <laughs> early there. All right, here we go. We talked a lot about the, con- uh, the biblical meta-narrative. Consider the biblical meta-narrative. Uh, the Bible is a story, one meta-narrative, that moves from setting problem climax to resolution, from creation. Uh, in the garden, in the beginning, there was unprohibited intimacy between God and humanity, between people and between humanity and the rest of the cosmos. And by chapter 3 of Genesis, all hell breaks loose. And uh, really, the Old Testament, although there were some good moments, really was predominantly a lot of bad moments. Uh, God sent the law, didn't cut it. God sent prophets, better, but didn't cut it. And eventually, God came to us as one of us to save us because he loves us and to swing the pendulum back to what it was like in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. That's what we get in Jesus, the preexistent Existence, incarnation, life, death, resurrection, ascension, intercension, and return of Christ. And then the mission, the resolution, the working out of salvation is really on the church. Um, this is my way of capturing the meta narrative. The church just continues what Christ started, the pendulum swinging back to pre fall existence. And that's what you have in Revelation. You have once again uh, a place where there is no death, no decay, no sin. Unprohibited intimacy, once again, in Revelation, we get back to this, where, where humans are intimate with God, there's nothing in the way, humans are intimate with each other, and humans are intimate with the rest of the cosmos, and, and uh, God is so close, so present, he will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more mourning, or dying, crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away, behold, all things have become new. That's where it ends. The story ends where it begins. And the reason why I share this, and this is just my way of trying to capture the meta narrative. You might have a different way, and I know there's gaps in this. But if I have this as a frame, a, a hermeneutical lens through which I interpret a text and preach a sermon, I can step back from my sermon and ask the important question before I preach it, hopefully. Does my sermon connect in any way with the overarching meta narrative? of the biblical story. (laughs) And if not, is it a biblical sermon? Eh, No, it's not. Uh, What what is a biblical sermon? I ask my students that all the time. What makes a biblical sermon biblical? Uh, Is it like verse-by-verse exposition? Do you have to actually have a text? Um, Is it jumping around from 37 different passages of Scripture? Is Is that a biblical sermon? Or, or, does the sermon say and do what the biblical meta narrative says and does? Is that a biblical sermon? That's what I would say. Contemplate theological questions. So before you preach the sermon, as you're developing it, you just ask these questions. I'm, I think these slides will be made available, so you don't have to jot them down. But um, there's some scary ones in here. Uh, number one, where does, where does the sermon fit with the biblical meta narrative? Does the sermon reveal or say anything of substance about God, Father, Son, or Spirit? Or is this humanistic? Uh, but the one that really scares me is this one. What might someone conclude about God based upon the sermon I just preached or I'm about to preach? That's scary. These are just some theological uh, guardrails to just keep us, make, making sure that we say something that matters to people. 
not just Oprah or Dr. Phil kind of stuff that helps them with their finances. What works? Who was talking about what works? I mean, uh, a sermon should not uh, slump into pragmatism. If we help people do a better job with their finances, but we don't connect them to God, we have not done our job. Craft a substantive sermon focus. Some people call this the main idea. Some people call this uh, the main theme. I call it the sermon focus. In between uh, the great lake of exegesis, when you're studying the text and you have all these notes and all this research you've done, you've got this great lake. And uh, between the great lake of exegesis and study and the river sermon, there has to be a sort of thinning out. Uh, You have to decide what the sermon will say this Sunday. What is the word from the Lord? What is the word God has given you? Because you can't say it all. There's a lot of sermons you can preach from a text. Millions. But what will the sermon say this Sunday that intersects with the text and your people? That's the sermon. And that's what the sermon focus is. The the, the sentence that the thought you want to plant in the heads and hearts of your people. It's not, a, it's not a phrase. It's not a topic. It is a declarative, strong sentence that will preach. You might not even repeat it, but it will become the center around which everything you say in the sermon revolves. So you got the Great Lake of Exegesis. you got this thin tributary stream I'm calling the sermon focus statement, and then that widens out into a river. Okay. I lost it. What did I do? Who knows how to use one of these? Shane. Give it up for Shane. Okay, so uh, so you might, you might craft a sermon focus statement that says something like the one up top. Ma- uh, manage your money well and you will thrive. And the nice thing about having a sermon focus before you actually build the rest of the sermon and preach it is you can step back from that statement and say, is that worthy of an entire sermon for my people this coming week? And then you can craft it differently. You can restate it. So this is something of substance about God. Submit yourself to God by being generous with your finances and he will give you joy. That's a better statement. Uh, We go to the next slide, Shane. Okay, so uh, what I want you to do is uh, answer these questions honestly. Which ones do you most employ? So connect with God devotionally in the process of developing and delivering sermons. Uh, Carefully progress through sermon sources uh, in, in the right manner. Uh, do you consider the biblical, biblical meta-narrative as you interpret a text? That is, the Bible helps you interpret that passage. Do you contemplate theological questions that help you uh, ensure that the sermon will say something of substance about God? And uh, do you craft a substantive sermon focus around which you build the entire sermon? So go ahead and talk in pairs or in threes, and we'll, we'll close with that in a couple minutes. Um, and then maybe have a, a Q&A quick before lunch. Uh, which of these do you most employ in your preaching? Or which of these do you employ? And which of these do you need to employ in your preaching that you don't employ? Go ahead and chat chat it out. And if you don't preach, just talk about your preacher. (laughs) All right.
Lenny would love to take some Q&A if you've got some questions for him. This is the time and the place for it. So, Lenny, questions? Uh, just one question. Like, I'm a student here, so, like, just kind of thinking through and, like, um, one thing we're being taught is like just to like to plan ahead. I've talked to like you know some preachers plan like six months ahead. Um, how do you kind of tie in with like the devotional, like using that and then also pairing it up with your study, but at the same time you're planning ahead for your sermons. Does that make sense? Like so like you know like if I'm like I know in three months I'm preaching on holiness. How do I work my devotional life into that study at the same time? Yeah, I think uh, great question. I think when you're uh when you start to dive into the text, I, I planned out my sermons on a quarterly basis, not planned them out, but sort of sketched out, usually month-long series I would do, uh, I would, and I would shift between topical and textual, uh, mostly textual, some topical. I'd let my congregation help me pick out the topical, but once I had a topic and a text and went to really work on the nuts and bolts of the sermon, I would make sure, again, at some point, after I've, after I've just sort of uh, done some of my exegetical work, and even while I was doing it, I would make sure I'd force myself to pause and ask those questions I raised before, which is, you know, God, what do you want to say to me through this text? Uh, how does what you said through the text back in the first century Palestinian culture applicable to my life? How can I incarnate and embody this reality in my life, in my marriage, in my parenting, in my friendship as a pastor? So I had, and I journaled that stuff, you know, so I had, so I made sure that I was connecting devotionally. And it's hard because uh, we want to be efficient, and there's only so many hours in the day. So we want to quickly come up with a talk. We want to be efficient in our sermon preparation process. And if we're going to be devotional, we can't always be efficient. <laughs> and I would err on the side of devotional. Even if you get up with a half-baked sermon that you engaged with devotionally, it's better than having an efficient, fully cooked sermon. Sermons are not, they're not microwavable. They're, they're crockpots. You know, I mean, they're, they're, they take a long time. To, that's why I say work. If you're a pastor who preaches every week, work on Monday. Not, uh, don't take off on Monday. Take off on Friday so that Monday you can get into the grind and get some sermon preparation done and let the text wash over you early in the week so, it's, so the baby is full term by Sunday ready to be delivered. And then you got to get pregnant again on Monday. You know, it's kind of rigorous. <laughs> Good question. Who else? Who else? <laughs> Just a question about uh, the post-sermon ministry to your people. If God is at work uh, through the worship, through the sermon, I find often that you can tell in the middle of your sermon if, if the Lord is really speaking to your people. What, is, uh, what are some practical tips on how to move your people into a time of ministry after the sermon, instead of just kicking them out, you know, and finishing with, you know, the mission field is out there. Yeah. Uh, how do you continue with the work of the Spirit that the sermon has brought after the sermon? And it seems that we as preachers should understand how to lead our people in that post-sermon afterglow. Yeah, great question. <clears throat> couple responses. Uh, one is move the sermon earlier into the service. Don't always make it the high point. Uh, give the word and then maybe make the response to the word the high point. So give people some time, music, prayer, sacrament to process what God was up to in the sermon. So we do. You're right. We, we preach the sermon. God shows up and it, see ya. You know, they're out the door. Uh, I think also to preach sermons that are connected to what's going on in the life of the church. So these are not 
These are not sermons we preach in a vacuum, disconnected from the... I do that now as a guest speaker. I just show up and preach, and I have no idea what, what God is doing. But as a pastor, you get to journey with your people so you know what God is up to. I mean, that's really ministry is saying, okay, what is Father, Son, and Spirit doing in the life of my church? How can I get behind it through my preaching? And then have outlets, like you said. So, I mean, if you're preaching on community, that, you know, so a sermon I preached some time ago was uh, the Trinity as a model for community. And uh, I didn't want to just preach that. I wanted to then say, okay, how can we model community in the life of the church so we're not just sharing a pew, but we're sharing life together? What does that look like? And so we, we launched small groups in a church that didn't have small groups. So it was a way to sort of give people a chance to respond to it. Sometimes that feels manipulative to people, like, oh, you preach a sermon and you ask me to do something, but it's the Christian life. I would also, uh, uh, during the summer especially, I would preach 20 minutes on a hot topic of some sort. What does the Bible say about war? What does the Bible say about marriage and divorce? What does the Bible say about sexuality? I would preach for 20 minutes on a topic that they selected based upon their survey. And then I would, uh, during song time, they would ask questions about the sermon and my pastoral staff and I would go in the back and say, okay, what are the four best questions or ones that we can answer? And then, and then we would come up front and just start a dialogue. And we, we, uh, so it gave people a chance to process the sermon after the sermon a little more. A couple ideas. Does that answer your question? To tie it into the sermon as best you can. So if it's about healing, offer anointing with oil in prayer. I don't think we do that enough. I didn't do that enough as a pastor. I, 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 uh, I undervalued my pastoral role in that regard as an agent of healing. But once I got it, we did it often. <laughs> and we did the sacrament often. I think communion is a great way to end the service, honestly. It's a great response to the word because you can tie it in anytime. I know we're Protestants. We do it once a quarter. But I did it more and more the further I went as a pastor. I was close to weekly. <laughs> Time, time for one more question. Uh, I'm a student here going into a pastoral role, and as far as sermon preparation, I've heard anything from five hours to 30 hours. I'm sure there are pastors that spend less than five, and I'm sure there are some that spend more than 30. Now, how much time should really be put into a good sermon, and how much of that is in the Word directly? How much of that is in prayer, commentary? I mean, how do you, how do you divvy that up? Uh, where's Steve Deneff? Is he here? He's gone, right? Good. Yeah. He had to change his shirt. (laughs) AJ Thomas. That guy's a long man. I mean, he's a a lot of buttons on that guy. 30 hours worth of buttons. Um, You know, it depends on the sermon. It's a great question. I I think the average is probably 10 to 15 hours. Uh, I think, too, when you're a staff pastor preaching once every six weeks, it takes you longer to get your rhythm, so it might take longer. Uh, when you're preaching every week, you have your rhythm down, so maybe it comes quicker. But some sermons, man, some sermons I get while I'm going to bed. I'm just going to bed. I'm thinking about the text, um, and the sermon just poof, drops. The word from the Lord drops down uh, upon me, sometimes early in the week, Monday or Tuesday, and then I just start to get creative in developing it. Uh, sometimes I'm wrestling with the angel of the text up until Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and uh, and the angel's not giving in, you know, and I just have to stay with it. So it really depends. Some sermons come quicker than others. That's not answering your question. But on average, 
uh, 10 to 15 hours a week. I, I will say this. I spent 20% of my sermon prep time, at least 20%, maybe 25% of the hours I had on prepping for delivery, not just developing the content. Preaching is, a, is an oral, not a written event, and yet most preachers spend 10, 15 hours writing it and hardly any time at all prepping to deliver it. And that's a mistake. So I would cut the content and practice and prayerfully internalize the content so I can stand up and embody it and deliver it from my soul without being more in love with my well-written manuscript than with the people to whom I preach. Lenny, thanks. This afternoon at 2 o'clock, Lenny will be back with us. Then at 3 o'clock, Steve Elliott will be making a presentation on transformation in the church and how it moves towards disciple-making in the church. And then Steve Deneff this evening, um, with a clean shirt, will be delivering the the closing message at 4 o'clock. He's actually, you'll probably notice he may not be here at 2 o'clock because he came to me and said, in the midst of what's going on here, the Lord is stirring some things in my heart. I know exactly what I want to say, but I need to go back and change it. Um, so he's kind of asking for permission for a skip. Uh, oh, man, if, if God's speaking, go, go. Um, and so he's really asked me, he said, I know that a number of you have driven a long way to get here. And you may be actually thinking, okay, now when can I, I'm, I'm setting this time is when I want to be home, so I need to leave by now to do it. Steve has asked, he said, uh, I've got some things to share at four o'clock. Would you do a little PR and make sure that people know that God's speaking to my heart and I want to speak to them? So that's a word from Steve, not from the Lord. But when Steve speaks, you will hear a word from the Lord. So two, three, and four o'clock. So you have from now to two o'clock So fellowship, share. I'm going to ask for the coaches and the emerging young preachers. If you'd come forward, we'll give you a few instructions. But go with with God and come back at 2 o'clock.